All right, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, we're talking to Karen Lux Goodrow. Uh, she is the program coordinator at, uh, for Pete at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, uh, which is one of the most fun city names in all of the USA. Uh, so here we go with a new episode of Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. And the article we're highlighting today is titled How One Exceptional Teacher Navigated Her Working Environment as a Teacher of a Marginal Subject. Um, I read this article in grad school, actually, and it really stuck with me. Um, I also have this as required reading in my master's reading seminar over summer, an all-around great article. Uh, it was published in 2011 in JTPE, and so thank you, Karen, for taking the time and joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm thrilled for this opportunity. Thanks. Yeah. So I remember this paper vividly um, from grad school as well as I can remember anything vividly in grad school. Uh, but it was just really well done. And I think it was a super cool in-depth analysis of a single case. Um, and I thought it was amazing how much we can learn from studying one person in depth and then compare this to the big N of these big quantitative studies. But both of them really have important pieces in the literature. Um, and I know you've done some follow-up work on this topic of marginalization, uh, but can you give us just like an overview of what we know about PE teachers as marginalized teachers? Sure. So um, we know from a, most of the literature in this area, at least within within Pete was done in the late 80s and the 90s um, documenting. It started out in terms of looking at, you know, how do teachers experience life in schools? And they just, you know, we they continued to report, um, I'm isolated, I'm frustrated. I continue to struggle to be perceived as a legitimate professional. Um, I am, you know, low on the totem pole of the hierarchy of subjects in schools. I'm, um, and they would report on the ways in which that um, this affected them personally. Um, and we know that um, teachers experience this because physical education as a subject matter is deemed as outside of what's centrally important, in, at least now in um, the American public school system where literacy and math now at the, I mean, even social studies and science and things like that are, are perceived as um, less central to school function, um, which is insane. But um, we know that because of that hierarchy of subject matter, um, physical education is a marginalized subject. And as a result of that, physical educators are marginalized professionals in the school setting. Um, that's what we know. Do you want me to talk a little bit about maybe sort of what, how that's evolved a little bit since I started this work or we'll get to that later? Yeah, I mean, I think the... Yeah, why don't why don't we do that? Why don't you kind of explain? Because I know that this paper was published in 2011, and you've done some other things since then, and and yeah. different pieces. So why don't you why don't we talk about that? Yeah. So um, this um, my interest in examining um, what do we know about people who have been successful in not necessarily overcoming marginality because that's not going to change, which is why we specifically use the term navigated, right? We don't want to say that physical educators have overcome this, right? Because physical education is, you know, on, in that hierarchy of subject matter um, low. 
Um, so how do, how do you sort of navigate and get around these landmines in your working environment? So my interest in, in examining teachers who have not let this get the best of them because it got the best of me as a practitioner, which is why I'm sitting in this chair today, why I'm not in the classroom. Um, when somebody who's able to successfully navigate this, what do they do? And so, and we talk, we'll talk about this in the discussion. So the underlying assumption is if we understand what those people do, then I can teach you how to do that so that you may be able to um, be better at navigating that working environment than let's say Karen was when she was in the public school in North Carolina. Um, at that, you know, we are not, at that time, we were not preparing pre-service teachers to be, to deal with this political landscape. We were preparing them to teach well, we were preparing them to plan lessons and deliver standards-based curriculum, but we were not preparing them for all this other stuff that goes into what it feels like to work in schools. And so, um, what, one of the things that came out of this was some very concrete strategies. And some of my subsequent work was, um, okay, so we're gonna take these themes, right? We're gonna take these strategies that Grace did. Well, what ha Well, we should be able to, you know, now we can teach these to somebody else. Well, can you? And what happens if you do? So um, I am currently preparing a manuscript from a year long project. Um, Kevin Richards and I have talked multiple times about getting this out the door, but I spent an entire year with a school district in Wyoming and I taught the teachers these navigational strategies. And for an entire year, they, and they self-selected which of these they were going to implement and we documented the process. Um, and I collected all sorts of data, um, mountains and mountains of data um, and multiple interviews. Um, and so, uh, what came out of that was that the process itself, beyond just the outcomes of, they ended up, they did feel different. Um, and they felt as though, certain people felt as though others responded differently to them, the structure, right, which we'll talk about later. Um, but simply the process itself of the professional development and this is not new if you want to look at Missy Parker's work or Kevin Patton's work or Kathy Armour, the process of re eliminating some of that isolation, which sort of brings it all full, full circle, right? Um, by engaging physical educators in this type of community of practice around these social and political strategies as opposed to curricular professional development, that's the real stuff they want to talk about anyway when they get in a room together. So sort of reduce, they felt less isolated. Um, which was a huge finding, but more on that later when, when I write it up. <laughs> yeah, so I, and I think it's interesting because you, you speak from such a uh, point of, you know, you, you struggled as a marginalized teacher, which led you to going into getting a doctorate degree in this subject matter and publishing papers about this, and then now sitting in here as a, researcher putting on that lens of going okay how do i you know really help you know pre-service teachers avoid these pitfalls and i think that this marginalization if we don't train teachers how to address these topics you know we're going to continue having the you know the the dropout rate that we do in in the first five years of teachers getting out there um 
But let's get into this uh, this study. So you used a, a case study, meaning you just had one person in the study and went super into depth and how they interpreted, interacted, and experienced their work environment. Can you uh, can you give me a description of the main character here? Well, who's Grace? Grace is a, I'm gonna, I guess, I don't know, was or is. I hope she's still teaching. Grace was a tiny person. She was about as big as a minute. I mean, if she was 100 pounds soaking wet, that was really saying something. Tiny, very, very petite, southern, very, very, remember this was in the North Georgia mountains. I drove an hour each way to get to her. Um, And I selected her because she had national board certification. Um, There were not many at that time. Um, and, uh, she, anyway, so she was this tiny little mite of a thing with this really, really thick Southern Georgia accent. She was a very faithful and religious woman. Um, she was this very unique balance of, she was like a barracuda, like wrapped in this like teeny tiny little Southern hospitality package right and that's if I I'm just saying that out loud for the first time which is probably why she was able to do this like diplomatic those the nuances of and I wrote this down I hadn't I haven't read that article in a long time concession compromise and unwavering decisiveness so she was like like she was like the sweetest most helpful kind loving unassuming, non-threatening little Southern thing. But if you cross that certain line into the things that, that where she ended up sort of drawing that line, she would, I mean, she was relentless, right? Um, She was national board certified. She had 20 some years of teaching experience. She lived in this community, um, that is a critical piece of, of this study, is and that's connected to that first theme. Um, she lived in this community. The children that she had in her classroom were children of former students. So she'd been teaching in this school so oh. long that the kiddos that she had, their parents had been in her classroom as eight, nine, and 10-year-olds which is a really critical piece to a lot of the strategies that, that she used. It was a, it's a very small rural Georgia town as well. Right. And so you had a really long engagement and now I'm understanding if it's an hour each way, uh, it's a far, (laughs) far drive, but you, you did this purposefully and you spent 11 weeks collecting data three days a week, uh, you had the unstructured and semi-structured and structured interviews, your notes, critical incident counts, and you were left with a ton of data to analyze and, and manage, really. So what are, what are some of the, the strategies you, say, you stated that um, Grace had four strategies that she used? What, what were those? Right. So um, the, the, basically, the question was, what does she do to navigate marginality? So the answer to that question is she did four to four things. The first one is what we called being one of their own. 
the second one was acquiring and maintaining instructional currency. The third one was uh, fostering and nurturing a relationship with a paraprofessional. And the fourth one was fostering diplomatic relationships with colleagues. Those were the four things that she did. Awesome. So why don't we just go one by one and kind of break down those uh, four strategies? Because I think that those are, it's interesting because that's what you kind of have based some of your future studies on if, of this. So yeah. let's break those down one yeah. by one if you can. Yes. So, so now I, th I should tell you that, um, so this was my dissertation. So what, what, what was published in the JTPE article, my dissertation looks like a textbook, but the JTPE article is right 20 some pages. So each of these strategies has multiple micro behaviors also that in the full dissertation we talk about some of these super, super specific ones. There's a corresponding Jobert article called How to Raise the Status of PE at Your School and it was also published in 2011. And that includes some of these teeny tiny micro behaviors that fit underneath these four themes. Does that make sense? Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, being one of their own simply uh, is about relationships, but not relationships in a way that like, oh, when you and I see each other in the hallway, that's, we exchange pleasantries. This is like, she was not an outsider. She was not a teacher who lived somewhere else and came into this community and worked at the school. This was her community. These were her, like her children had gone to this school. Um, I told you before that the, the children at the time that I was there were, their parents had been students of hers. And so all of the people that had, I mean, she was kind of the rock of the school on a personal level. She was a part of these people's families. Um, she had like a bunch of children of her own, but she was constantly going to events outside of school. Um, so she was a, an active member of the community, not just as a teacher, but as a citizen herself, right in the town where this little school was. And then the second one is that she acquired and maintained instructional currency. And instructional currency was contact time with students, equipment, re any sort of resource, right? Any possible thing, whether it be uh, tangible or intangible, um, that would be provided to her, she would take it and then figure out what to do with it later. She vehemently guarded her time with kiddos. Um, if a teacher wanted to bring their children and there was only 10 minutes left in their allotted PE time, she would take them. Um, as opposed to, and I know I did this myself as a physical educator or I saw I've seen other physical educators do this oh well you know you're not back from your field trip and you only have it's 920 and your PE time ends at 930 I'll just see you next at the next lesson no she would be like how soon can you be here every single minute that she could have with the kids she would take uh, I have never seen more equipment in my entire career even still to this day and not even good stuff like 
every single possible piece of equipment, if it was broken, she didn't throw it out. I mean, she had so much stuff, like to the point sometimes where I was like, oh my God, like, why don't you get rid of some of this stuff, right? Like I remember her asking her that. And she would say things like, if I get rid of it, then that communicates the need, you know, that I don't need it or that I can do without. And I need to send the message that I need every single possible resource that you can provide for me. And then I need you to keep giving me more, right? Um, uh, she had a full-time paraprofessional who was with her every minute of her entire school day. Now this is, in, and I've worked in numerous states and with hundreds of teachers, I've never seen that. The reason why she had the paraprofessional is because they gave her double classes. She taught double classes, that was her life. It wasn't like she only taught them on one day or this grade level, every single class, and that goes back to the instructional currency. She did not ask for them to be separated because she wanted the children to have as much PE time as possible. So when her principal was like, oh, okay, kids are gonna have PE every day or you're gonna have double classes or whatever, she didn't complain about it. She wasn't like, that's not developmentally appropriate. She was like, awesome, you're gonna give them more time. You're gonna, I'm, you're gonna let me see these students more often. Um, I need some resources. So they gave her this Parapro and this woman, uh, you know, I think she maybe had a community college degree, had never, didn't have an undergraduate degree, had not gone through teacher preparation. She was an aide, but had worked with Grace for years. And over the course of that time together, Grace essentially turned her into a student teacher. She was, could talk to you about how to assess kids in the psychomotor domain. Grace taught the parapro essentially all of the things that you would teach a beginning teacher and essentially created for herself um, a certified teacher, not exactly the same, but um, I witnessed lessons where the para-pro was doing small group instruction and doing it using effective pedagogy uh, because Grace had taught her to do that. Now, they had been working together for probably I don't know, five, six years at that time. She relied on her not just for the instructional support, but also for the emotional support in dealing with some of the typical things that get the best of PE teachers, right? Right. And it, it seems like it's really nice to have a consistent paraprofessional. And I know, you know, in my experiences working with teachers who have the luxury of having a paraprofessional because not everybody does, but sometimes they're in for one year and then they leave and then you have to yeah. train someone again. And um, yeah. because I mean, there are for a ton of different life reasons. There are people who are very satisfied with being a paraprofessional and they're not yeah. going to go back to school and become a teacher, but they can have almost the same impact as a teacher if they're, if they're guided well. So, yeah. And the last one was, um, uh, fostering diplomatic relationships with colleagues. And this is the way in which she formed alliances with um, classroom teachers in her building. Um, and we specifically used the word diplomatic because she was incredibly unselfish and supportive and would do things that like, 
I mean, I rem- she would do things that I did when I was in the classroom. I didn't do because I was like, oh, I'm a certified teacher. Like, I don't need to be taking your attendance and you know taking your thing down to the lunch lady, right? Like, she did those things, and then she, she used it because then she would turn around, and then she would use that political and social capital for support and then to ask for things. And then when she drew the line, like I'm gonna give and give and give and give and give. And so then the one time that I say, oh, hold up, no. They weren't mad at her, they respected her because they saw her as someone who supported them. And she had to establish that first. So those were the four strategies. And it's it's very thought out almost in a sense of I'm gonna take all the stuff on and then when I ask for something it's actually really listened to and and valued so yes and what I learned was she was incredibly deliberate now because she presented it as this tiny sweet little southern woman you know with this incredible faith in God if you didn't think twice about her and went on about your business you would she would present as not a doormat, but not a doormat at all, but she would present as like, oh yeah, like she's harmless and blah, blah, blah. She was very deliberate in in what she chose to do and not in a manipulative, like malicious sort of way, but very like, like you said, very thoughtful. She knows how to play the game. So she knew how to play the game. So looping all this back to the structuration theory, uh, and I know we have a mini pot on that, but you say that using the theory kind of allowed you to look at how Grace's actions influence everyday practices in her school structure and also how that structure informed the strategies and tactics she used to, again, navigate marginality. So, for example, the structure of the elementary school assigned the most value to subjects you talked about earlier, literacy, math, science. And I think a lot of PE teachers can relate to this. So in response to this commonly held belief within the environment, Grace deliberately demonstrated and explained how her work and physical education involved these educational concepts. And so this in turn kind of then impacted the structure as some members of the school community, although slowly uh, began to recognize the academic value of Grace's PE program. But you then talk about the assumption in the study. Can you talk about the assumption that uh, that you took in the study? Yeah, and it's interesting um, in going back and, and looking at, at this particular piece in the article is that what we now know, we've, I've, we now have extended this, we know more about this assumption after some of the work that Kevin and I have done in perceived mattering. So this marginality stuff led me to perceived mattering. But the assumption was we cannot separate the marginality of the subject matter from the marginality of the individual, right? And that was the assumption going in, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, physical education is a marginalized subject. Therefore, you are a marginalized professional. And that it, that remains. What that led me, that particular notion Uh, or theoretical assumption, if you will, led me to explore, I wanted to explore that deeper because this was kind of a constant question mark that that Brian and I, my doctoral advisor at the time, kept coming back to when we were 
uh, he was my peer debriefer, right? When we were talking about these data and analyzing these data. Um, and so it wasn't until a couple of years later um, in my first academic position that I came across perceived mattering as a construct. How much do I feel like I matter, right? So what we now know is marginality refers to occupying a particular position in a social group or organization. Mattering is the feelings associated with occupying that position. So you might feel like you matter, but we know because of the hierarchy of subjects in, in K-12 public schools, at least in America, you are, you are a marginalized professional. That is not up for debate. There's a, you know, a vast amount of literature to that effect. But we can differentiate between, uh, you, physical education, at least for the near future, will always occupy a marginalized position, and that's going to bring inherent challenges that you have to be prepared for and have skills to deal with. But what we can tinker with, while we may not yet be able to change the hierarchy, what we can tinker with is how can I help you feel like you matter more, right? So marginality doesn't get the best of you. Mm -hmm. How can I help you feel like you matter? And that's where this interest in understanding marginality and providing people with some tools to deal with it has led us. So I, the assumption that these are one and the same remains, but it's kind of, uh, there's kind of like this caveat now, right? So you might be marginalized and we may not be able to separate that, but we do know that you can feel, despite that, you could feel like you matter. So how do we make pre-service teachers believe that they matter? Are, are these things that you are then teaching at the university level? Is this uh, the duty of Shape America? Or is this, you know, hiring motivational speakers to talk to us or <laughs> sending us on, you know, retreats? I don't know. So, no, I, I'm going to argue that it's uh, micro interactions not large grand gestures that ha help people feel like they matter. But the number one most important thing, and this is true in grace, whether or not we are talking about marginality as a positional construct or mattering as a sort of emotive construct, relationships. Right. Being one of their own, the fact that it, that was about relationships. They, these people loved her. They really didn't care as much about PE, but they cared about her, right? The paraprofessional yeah. relationships, diplomacy with classroom teachers, relationships. So if I could only say one thing, and this is what I just said to these teachers in Albuquerque Public Schools in January, relationships, 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 and that's easy to say and can sometimes be taken in a very superficial way, but relationships is the key that opens the door. Now, what you do once you walk through the door is another thing, right? Um, so, for example, you could re do relationship building all day long, but if you're rolling the ball out and you are not delivering innovative curriculum, if you're still doing traditional team sports that, that prioritize highly skilled boys, right? 
it, it doesn't matter. You can relationship build. You can advocate all day long. You're still going to fit that stereotype, right? So you have to be a good teacher. But the relationship is the way you can get people to, to even be on someone's radar, right? Um, and that's how you get people to support your program is because they support you. Right. And I think that's a key point there. And, you know, even though she might be isolated off, you know, as PE, people knew her as a person and people knew that she had a passion about what she was doing and she was hardworking. And when she said something, she she meant it yes. and she followed through and, you know, she didn't take the easy way out when she could have had yeah. a free period of not teaching because right. the students would come in late off a field trip. She took every single minute. Um, so let me ask you this. What, what are some concluding thoughts that you can pull from this paper? Kind of like, you know, just, you know, either reviewing those highlights or just kind of what did you get from this? And also from your point of view as you being in this position and then going to study for a PhD and then going to observe a teacher who is kicking butt at doing this really well where you might have you know found some hardships um i do think it's important to note that it wasn't like everybody loved her she was the most important person in the school and she felt completely satisfied and motivated and respected every day no 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 she completely described a lot of the same we we shared stories and connected over the frustrations that all of us face, she felt all of those things. There was nothing, what was unique and different about her that made her, as Robert Stake would say, is like a unique or an exceptional case worth selecting is that what she, how she chose to respond to it, right? Um, and so I don't wanna paint this picture whereas to like, you know, she's this crazy outlier that had this, you know, utopian sort of, it was in many ways very standard and as you would expect, right? Not everyone in the school thought highly of her, right? Like um, everyone respected her, but not everyone. I mean, some people were like, PE, you know, like, um, but, but the takeaways from this for me are rela relationships, my God. If they don't care about PE, if they care about you, they won't want you Karen to have your time taken away. They won't, they won't want you, their friend, to be devalued or disrespected. And then the subject matter is sort of secondary, right? The personal connection is the in, right? That allows your advocacy efforts to be effective. Second, the advocacy has to be relentless. And this is tied to my third point, which is about micro behaviors. It's not like you're gonna go this one time and you're gonna make this PT, the presentation to like the entire school and it's just gonna be this huge advocacy effort. It is exhausting minute to minute attention to the words that come out of your mouth, your body language, when you're tired and you don't feel like taking those kids for that extra 10 minutes. It is every minute of every day, those, it's a way of being, as opposed to like, I think I'm gonna engage in some advocacy today, <laughs> right? Um, it's relent, I mean, she was relentless. 
Yeah. Um, and and clearly passionate as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like she was as tough as nails, right? But she was this dinky little thing. Um covered in sugar, right? Tough as nails on the inside, covered in sugar on the outside. Um, but relationships, personal relationships, meaningful ones, not like smiling at someone in the hallway, yeah. right? Um, and she actually, she really cared, right? Um, relentless advocacy and micro behaviors of um, demonstrating your value, demonstrating the value of yourself as a legitimate pedagogist, your knowledge of curriculum development, regardless of content area. Um, so it's, it's hard work, it's diligence. It's also, you know, she had national board certification. Yeah. She, you know, was passionate about her subject. And, you know, she had great relationship building skills and seems to also invest in, um, I don't want to use the word subordinate, but in a paraprofessional in that situation, like she invested in teaching that person to be a colleague instead of saying, yeah. hey, can you just like take these kids and do X, Y, Z? It was right. going through and training her and teaching her just like she would as a as a new, yeah. new pre-service teacher. Yeah. So, awesome. Um, are there like future lines of research that you're working on now? I know you talked a little bit about that. Do you wanna share anything about uh, things that you've followed up with or things for us to kind of look forward to? Yeah, so um, like I said, we've got this stuff in Perceived Mattering that kind of is a spin-off. Led, the mar marginality stuff led me to the Perceived Mattering and Kevin Richards and I and Amy Woods have collaborated on a, on a bunch of that, which we're still interested in. One of the things that has come out in the perceived mattering stuff is that mattering of subject matter is separate from mattering as an individual. And this sort of speaks to that assumption of the paper that we talked about before. Um, so there's what we call PE matters and then person matters. Our next series of studies are going to be unpacking the person matters construct because one of the questions we have is person as a teacher educator or person as an individual human so that's we want to understand that better um, and so we're looking at ways that we may be able to sort of try and tease out whether or not those two things are separate if they are or if they're together how what's the dynamic and how are those two things intertwined right. um <clears throat> sorry it was pe matters and teacher matters right pe matters and teacher matters if you look at those um series of five or six papers in perceived mattering and it's the teacher matters business that we want to understand is it you as an educator or you as you risto or karen right. or Ever, right nothing to do with you know your craft as a as an educator so there's that and then um you know the the, the intervention study if you will um that is um you know the first manuscript that is going to come out regarding that is talking about just describing the nature of the professional development because unless i've missed something um there's no like formalized pd to teach this, right? We provide PD for curriculum, 
for assessment, for standards, right? Those sorts of things. But but the first paper is essentially making a case we need to provide PD for these, this is a set of skills, right? Just like pedagogical skills are, right? And so that, but then unpacking, here's one way that that this was attempted. Here's what the protocol, here's what the intervention looked like. And then a series of papers that are presenting the findings of that, right. of that. There's a couple of those, so. There's a, there's a little bit of writing for you. So right? enjoy it's been, that. It's been, um, I had two children, so, um, you know, it's, I can't believe it's been this long and it's still sitting there. Yeah. So I, I super appreciate your time. Um, I know that you are a busy individual running a undergraduate master's doctoral program, a couple kids, uh, some papers here and there and, and a ton on your desk. So, uh, thank you a lot for your work. Um, I know that the work coming up is interesting too. And, and, uh, the stuff that you're working with, uh, Kevin Richards, um, how do people find out more about your program at New Mexico or you on social media or anything? Do you have any stuff like that? Yes. So go to Google and put in University of New Mexico Physical Education, and we will be there. We are going through a website revamp right now, so um, it looks outdated, but new content is coming soon, um, and you can find information on our undergraduate master. Our master's program is 100% online um, and designed for practicing teachers, and then our PhD program is back up and running, um, and we have fully funded assistantships available. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Lux Goodrow. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, Instagram, but most, most of my professional stuff would be on Twitter. So at Lux Goodrow. Awesome. And, uh, we'll link to all that stuff. And I think one of the things for future PhDs, the fully funded assistantship positions, those are, yeah, those are sure. great things to advertise. So, uh, yes. We'll link to that website as well. So um, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate yes, it. Thanks. And uh, that's all we got for you on this one. And thanks for listening. <laughs>